Welcome back to our class, Encounters with Jesus, episodes from the Gospel of Mark. And last time we looked at Jesus' transfiguration, affording his disciples an opportunity to catch a glimpse of his eternal glory. And it becomes the source of encouragement after Jesus has given some hard sayings to his disciples about self-denial and cross-bearing. It's a glimpse into what awaits them if they give their lives in service to him. That if they take up their cross and follow him, they will share in his glory. And then Mark tells us what preoccupied their discussion on the way down from the mountain. Now, wouldn't that have been just interesting to listen in on as Jesus comes down from his transfiguration on the mountain and we get to hear how his, what his disciples are talking about with him. So Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. One of the great Christian books of all time is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress says, says that when Jesus Christ came to dwell on earth in human flesh, that he made his country house or his country estate in the valley of humiliation. Now, we think of a country estate or a country house, our house in the country, as a place where uh, it's a place of solitude, a place of retreat and refreshment, where we can unplug from the busyness of life and burdens are lifted, stresses are relieved. It's a happy, calming place. But Bunyan, however, takes these images of pleasantness and rest and applies them to Jesus' pilgrimage in the Valley of Humiliation. This is what Bunyan says. Our Lord loved much to be here, that is, in this Valley of Humiliation, he loved to walk these meadows, for he found the air was pleasant. Here a man shall be free from the noise and from the hurryings of this life. All states are full of noise and confusion. Only the valley of humiliation is that empty and solitary place. This is a valley that nobody walks in except those that love a pilgrim's life. Men have met with angels here, have found pearls here, and have in this place found the words of life. Uh, that is counterintuitive to everything that our society teaches us. Most of us think that the valley of humiliation is a place to be avoided at all costs because it's here that we encounter trial and adversity and pain and grief and affliction. But Bunyan encourages us to think of it differently, just as Jesus did. That it's, it's really a place that we should view uh, as, a, as, as a place of treasure, a treasured place, a place of growth and fellowship with the triune God. And Jesus here seeks to persuade his disciples of this reality too, as Jesus and his inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, have just spent a few glorious, unhurried, unrushed moments on the Mount of Transfiguration, as the veil of Jesus' humanity was lifted, his divine essence was allowed to shine through, they saw his glory, they, kept, they caught a glimpse of his glory, Jesus, luminescent, talking with Moses and Elijah, these Old Testament heroes, these great prophets of old, a voice from heaven affirms Jesus' identity and importance. And then the voice urges the disciples to listen to Christ. Here's how you respond to the revelation of his glory. Worship, 
Listen to Christ. Believe what he says. Adore him. But then it comes to an end. Moses and Elijah disappear. Jesus is left standing by himself. The clouds lift. This glorious moment concludes. Now they must return to real life. Now they must go back down the mountain. And the trek down the mountain affords Jesus an opportunity to teach his disciples about his overall mission. So we see, first of all, the descent, the descent from the mountaintop. And there's a picture of spiritual realities here as they walk down the mountain from the high point down back into the valley. And then Jesus talks more about his mission by showing, by explaining profiles and courage. Here are some examples of people who have followed in my place, namely Elijah, John the Baptist, and then Jesus himself, the path that he has laid out for us. So first of all, this descent from the mountaintop. Verse 9 of Mark chapter 9 says, as they were coming down the mountain. So at this point, think of the disciples basking in the glow, the afterglow of the transfiguration. As they had been both stunned and terrified, Peter, remember, became talkative in his terror, became very chatty, just trying to think of anything to say to, to capture the moment, making suggestions about building three shelters for Moses and Elijah and for Jesus. Uh, Peter loves the high points, doesn't he? Uh, the transfiguration moments of Jesus' ministry. Uh, you'll recall that no sooner had Jesus announced his upcoming suffering and death that Peter rebuked him very strongly, a rebuke laced with demonic strychnine. Jesus, don't think about death and suffering and rejection. Think about the glory alone. Think about the victory. Think about us winning. Think about us being champions. Uh, maybe we could say Peter was kind of a glory junkie. He had visions of grandeur and triumph, not suffering and rejection. In his mind, Jesus was the Christ, but he was a freedom fighter Christ, not a suffer and die kind of Christ. So descending the mountain was good for Peter. He loved the high points. But he needed to return to reality. You can't stay on the mountain forever, can you? We must return to the valley. It's where This is where we spend most of our lives. Yes, the mountaintop can be glorious. Uh, we've all, I trust, experienced moments in our spiritual pilgrimage where the clouds have lifted and sunlight breaks through and we bask in the glory of the Son of God. And those times can carry us through the darker times when our faith is challenged. But we can't stay on the mountaintop. Uh, earthly life cannot be all heavenly visions, and you can't cling to those visions, like Jesus told Mary Magdalene in the garden not to cling to her because he had not yet ascended to the Father. Uh, the children of Israel could not freeze-dry the manna. Peter would not be able to memorialize his glory moment on the Mount of Transfiguration by building these three tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. So, yes, we do get glimpses of glory, but we are not yet glorified. Glory has not been fully realized for us. And this is a tension for us, because if we expect the fullness of glory too soon, it can lead us to a brand of messianic triumphalism. Uh, we, we start expecting perfection, perfection out of ourselves, perfection out of others. Uh, perfectionism involves misplaced timing. Sometimes Christians are surprised that they struggle with the sin, the flesh, lust, fear, doubt, unbelief, failure. And why are Christians surprised? Because they might be expecting the fullness of glory here and now, sinless perfection in this life, when it is not possible. So spiritual perfectionists are not content with the process of change and 
growth, the ups and downs of the sanctification process. Paul says in Philippians 3.2, I am not perfect yet. He had not yet arrived. His struggle with the flesh continued. He had not fully obtained the knowledge of Christ or perfection in Christ or the, the fullness of his salvation in Christ or the complete enjoyment of his union with Christ. So he continued straining forward, pressing towards the prize. There was labor, there was effort, there was sweat and toil. So Christians should be warned against expecting the fullness of glory too soon, lest it lead to a brand of messianic triumphalism. And uh, while we want to celebrate, we do want to enjoy those high mo moments, those mountaintop moments of the Christian life, like Peter did. Uh, the, the, the fullness of glory has not yet arrived. We get glimpses of glory, but we are not yet glorified. So uh, in 1992, during Super Bowl 27, there was this uh, huge, massive player for the Dallas Cowboys named Leon Lett. Leon Lett was known as the Big Cat. He stood at six foot six inches tall, weighed nearly 300 pounds, just this massive giant of a human being. Uh, he was a lineman for the Dallas Cowboys. And in the waning moments of the game, a game that was a blowout, the Dallas Cowboys had already won it. Um, but Leon Lett recovered a fumble made by the Buffalo Bills quarterback, Frank Reich, and it was a so it's rare for a giant lineman to recover a fumble and then actually have a shot at scoring a touchdown. And Lett looked like a, uh, a freight train just barreling down the field, but also part ballerina because he, he, he ran with such speed and dexterity for such a giant human being. But as he neared the goal line, Leon began to go into a victory dance. He began to spread his arms out like this, like he was going to celebrate this touchdown that he had scored, holding the football out, a taunting gesture, when out of nowhere, this speedy wide receiver named Don Beebe knocked the ball from his hands on the two-yard line. So instead of, the, instead of crossing the goal line for a touchdown, a glorious moment rarely achieved by an interior lineman, Leon blew this scoring opportunity by a premature merriment launching into a celebration too early. So for the Christian, the glory is coming. We catch glimpses of that glory now. Uh, we are destined for glory, but we also live and serve in a hostile world bent on destroying God's messengers and servants. This is an age of tribulation. As Paul says in the book of Acts, uh, it's through tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God and its fullness. We must walk through the valley of humiliation like Jesus, we must be willing to deny ourselves and bear our cross. And that's why Jesus issues this command to his disciples for silence. He charged them, verse 9 says, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus wants to avoid some kind of popular revolutionary moment that will transform him into a political freedom fighter because he is there to fulfill his messianic task, which is to die for the sins of the world. So this reference to his future rising from the dead shows Jesus again pointing to his death. This is why I have come. Jesus didn't want his disciples to succumb to some emotional adrenaline in a way that would inhibit his path to the cross. So they actually obeyed Jesus' command. Verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they kept his, his secret confidential what they had seen there on the Mount of Transfiguration, but they still had questions. They are stumped. Uh, 
His teaching about suffering has still not sunk in. They haven't fully absorbed it. In fact, the two words here in verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, that word kept, and then questioning, they questioned, so they kept the, they kept the matter to themselves, they questioned what it all might mean. Those words usually, uh, when used by Mark, have negative connotations. It suggests that the disciples did not simply keep the secret to themselves, as Jesus demanded, but they actually squashed it. They appear to misunderstand and perhaps even to resist Jesus' commands. And we can imagine why. If the Son of Man is to be raised, that means he must first die. And they are unprepared for any thought of a Messiah that must suffer and die before his entrance into glory. So as the descent down the mountain continues, it prompts further questions from the disciples. And Jesus responds by giving several profiles and holy courage, examples of people just like Jesus who had denied themselves, who had taken up their cross, who had suffered for him. And he highlights here Elijah and John the Baptist, and he highlights again his own mission. So we go from the descent now to these profiles in holy courage. And the first person he profiles is Elijah. Uh, verse 11 says, They asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now what prompts this question about Elijah? Well, they've just seen Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. He and Moses talking with Jesus about his future sacrifice on the cross. Uh, maybe it reminded the disciples about the popular scribal tradition in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there was this powerful mystique surrounding Elijah the prophet. Uh, he's arguably one of the more popular Old Testament prophets. He's classic, bold, strong, courageous, standing up to the religious and political establishment, confronting the evils of Ahab and Jezebel. On Mount Carmel, it was Elijah versus the world. He risked his life. He was driven into the desert. And the scripture gives no record of his death. He was caught up into heaven in a fiery chariot, this unusual departure from earth that only added to his mystique. And so Malachi's prophecy makes it sound like Elijah will return before the day of the Lord in final judgment, that he would be this restoring agent using his power and reputation to heal divisions in Israel. And so by asking this, the disciples are actually a little sneaky here, a little cagey. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? It seems like a harmless question. But it's a leading question. Its intent is to suggest that Elijah's return to restore all things should eliminate then the need for Jesus to go to the cross. Ah, disciples are a little bit sneaky. In other words, the disciples are saying something like this. Hey, we just saw Elijah up on the mountain. And according to Malachi, the day of the Lord must now be near. Jesus, why then do you keep talking about death? Because Elijah is here. You don't need to go to the cross. And that leads to the second profile in holy courage, and that's John the Baptist. In verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So the disciples are not totally wrong. An Elijah-type figure has returned. John the Baptist was the first century Elijah. He was the forerunner of the Messiah, as we're told in Mark 1. John the Baptist came in Elijah's spirit and power. Uh, both men preached repentance. Both men spoke truth to power. Both men were persecuted. 
for, for proclaiming the truth. Um, so Jesus lays the disciples flat. Elijah has come. Elijah was pointing to John the Baptist. Modern day, first century, Elijah has come and gone. John the Baptist has suffered and died. Uh, the, the, the first century Elijah, which would be John the Baptist, his execution by Herod is a herald of the Lord's execution. So rather than the appearance of Elijah, a.k.a. John the Baptist, being an excuse not to speak of death or suffering, Jesus actually uses it as justification for his death and suffering. So profiles in holy courage, Elijah, John the Baptist, and then Jesus himself. As he says in verse 12, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So John the Baptist was modern-day Elijah, engaging in a restoration of repentance, transformed hearts, not an earthly or political kingdom. And the response to John the Baptist was but a foreshadowing of the response there would be to the Messiah, rejection, suffering, contempt. Jesus boldly entered the valley of humiliation. He underwent the miseries of this life. As Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He knew hunger, pain, sorrow, loneliness, poverty. He knew what it was like to be unjustly ridiculed and hated. He lived among sinful people, which vexed his righteous soul. He was subject to all the effects of the fall, yet without sin. He experienced the full torment of the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. As his cry from the cross, that cry of dereliction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Summarized his torment. Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we are to have the mind of Christ. We take what is best, greatest, and most desirable to us, and we abandon it freely for the interests of others. That's what Christ-like humility means. Not insisting on our so-called rights, but willingly forsaking them for the, forsaking them for the sake of others. Suffering and glory are inseparable. There are no shortcuts. I think here of the in history of marathons, there's been no shortage of cheaters, the most famous being Rosie Ruiz in 1980. Rosie was the first woman to cross the finish line in the Boston Marathon. She had achieved the third fastest time ever recorded for a female runner, two hours, 31 minutes, 56 seconds. But she looked remarkably sweat-free and relaxed as she climbed the winner's podium to accept the wreath. And race officials and fellow runners began to question her victory right away, almost immediately, because no one could remember seeing her during the race. Monitors at various checkpoints had not seen her. Runners had not seen her. Photographs taken during the race showed no sign of her. Her absence was overwhelming. And finally, a few members of the crowd came forward to reveal that they had seen her jump into the race during its final half mile, where she then sprinted to the finish line. And no one knows quite how she did it. Some speculate she took the subway to that particular point in the race and then jumped in the race there at the end. But when Rosie's ruse was found out, she was disqualified. But to the day of her death, she claimed that she ran the full race. You can't have the glory of victory without the sweat of hard work and training and running the race. And for the Christian, that means we follow the path of our master. That path leads to the cross. So suffering and glory are inseparable. There are no shortcuts. You cannot have a crown. You cannot have the, 
the, the laurel wreath of glory without a cross. Humility precedes exaltation. We have to come down from the mountaintop to walk through the valley of humiliation with our Lord. But know that in that valley of humiliation, he has promised never to leave us, never to forsake us. There we can meet heavenly visitors. There we can find pearls of great price. There we discover the words of life.